0: Today's episode is brought to you by Wonder Label. Wonder Label is your one-stop shop for professional custom clothing labels and personalized branding products. Upload your own logo or use their interactive online design tool to create a custom design for your business. Check them out on their website at www.wonderlabel.com that's W-U-N-D-E-R label.com, to learn more about their clothing labels, hang tags, laundry labels, and more. Thank you so much, Wonder Label. And now, here's the show. 101 of the craft industry alliance podcast i'm abby glassenberg craft industry alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business stay up to date on industry news and build connections within our supportive trade association check it out at craftindustryalliance.org Today on the show, we're talking about building a weaving loom and spindle company with my guests, Jane Patrick and Barry Schacht. Jane has been in the weaving and textile arts field for over 40 years. Between 1981 and 1992, she was an editor at Interweave Press, where she edited handwoven magazine, books, and design collections. Jane is an ardent enthusiast of both the art and craft of the textile arts with interests in both contemporary and traditional work. Jane is the creative director for Shack Spindle Company. Her current project is developing a textile school at Schacht in Boulder, Colorado. Jane Patrick, welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Great to have you. And Barry Schacht is the CEO of Schacht Spindle Company. He came into the weaving and spinning world by chance in 1969 when his brother's girlfriend wanted to learn to spin. From a first commission to make a drop spindle to creating a loom with little knowledge, Barry has been the guiding light of Shaq Spindle Company, now housed in a 33,000 square foot building and employing 50 employees. Barry Shaq, welcome. Hi. Hi. It's great to have you both. Good morning. Um, I'm super excited to talk with you. I think you've built such a beautiful and incredible business that's contributed so much to the industry. So I'd love to kind of... Go back to that 1969 date that we mentioned in the intro and maybe Barry you can tell me a little bit about that first commission and how you sort of got into doing all of this
1: sure uh, the the first thing that's the most different from today is I had a lot more hair <laughs> and you know it was long curly hair of the era but um as you said um my brother had a girlfriend and she wanted to learn to spin. We took a ride with uh, three people and three dogs to Green Tree Ranch in Loveland. We had heard tell that there was somebody teaching. Louise Green taught um, the girlfriend how to spin, and then she kind of sidled over to me and said, uh, you hippies got some spare time. Do you think you could make these spindles? So they were a doorknob with a stick, through the middle. And um, we said, yes, how many, how much? She said, 200. I said, I'll let you know the price. Um, we went back to Boulder. I found out where the doorknob was made. I called the company in Chicago. And when the guy said, who is this for? I invented the name and I said, shacked Spindle Company. And that was the, the birth of the name of the company. We made the 200 spindles for her. Hand painting a little green tree on each one with borrowed equipment from the University of Colorado, uh, returned them to her, and she was delighted. And she said, "Why don't you make a loom?" And we said, "What's a loom?"
0: And did you have any business or textile background? So when you pulled up to this ranch within this van with the dogs and everything, um, what did you know? Where were you coming from? What did you already know?
1: Well, I had um, I grew up in the um, retail men's clothing business, so I always had a good feel for fabric. You know, I always remember things like plaids and paisleys, and um, Bermuda shorts. You know, with different uh, fabrics, uh, bleeding madras is what was so famous in those days. So I, I had a really good feel about it. Um, And I used to design the windows for my parents' business. I built the shoe department. I really was very interested in um, the business and the style and fashion. And we had a wood shop in the basement, so I had some familiarity with making things. But overall, uh, these were the days where, you know, it was more important to be sitting and laying back in the hammock than working a lot. But I had just been fired from a job at the University of Colorado. No, I wasn't a professor. I was a grounds crew member. And uh, we had no, uh, no job and a lot of time. So sure, we took this first commission on very enthusiastically.
0: Yeah, 1969 was a pretty tumultuous year in American history. So um, an interesting time to get started in business.
2: It was. And what Barry didn't mention about getting fired is he was on the grounds crew and he mowed a peace symbol into the front lawn of the student union. And um, so that's what got him fired. Wow. That's
1: amazing. <laughs> you know, they, they give you two hours to do a 10 minute job. So I was being creative.
0: Right. Exactly. And it's, so it sounds like your parents, did they have a like a menswear store? Is that what they had?
1: Menswear retail store um, that became a phenomenal success. My mother was a tailor, and I probably learned quite a bit of uh, alteration tailoring at her side.
0: Okay, got it. All right, and so how did you and Jane meet? Was that later or was that around that time?
1: It's a great story, and it may be a little embarrassing to Jane. But I'll tell my part and then, you know, she can tell her part.
2: I can correct.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, memory is that. But, you know, this is another month is our 40th anniversary. So we've been together almost ever since that first meeting. um, And we met at a weaving shop. And I owned the buildings. I used to own the retail shop. And I sold that to friends. And I went in one Friday after work. And uh, my friend who owned the business, who happened to be Eric Redding and Deborah Redding, Deborah Chandler of the famous um, Learning to Weave book. And uh, he introduced me to Jane and my heart palpitated and I was in love. But it took a couple of um, months and weeks and, you know, I had to cook dinner for her before she really was willing to accept me as a, uh, I think, a real guy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Does that sound about right, Jane?
2: Yeah, it it sounds about right. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. So you, Matt, and Jane, you had a textile love as well. So tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what you were doing when that time happened when you and Barry met.
2: Sure. Well, I was always a putzer. We, I was always making things growing up, and then I had, I was very lucky. I got to be an exchange student, and I went to Iceland in 1971 for a year. And as part of that year, I went to home ec school and you, I didn't have to go to class, which is great. I could just do the textile art. So I learned how to knit and I stitched and um, I sewed a top. And then I went into the weaving room and I saw those looms and it was like, I have to do this. And they had finished weaving for the year, but they were still warps on the loom so they said I could weave them off. I had no idea what I was doing. The girls helped me, but I knew that that was something I wanted to do in my life. So then I came home and I went to college and weaving was kind of put on the side and I studied anthropology and then I moved to Boulder and I went to the weaving shop that Barry had owned and I learned from Deborah Redding, now Deborah Chandler. So she was my weaving teacher and I just loved it. I just couldn't get enough of it. And at the time I was working in um, a youth employment, like as a social worker, but I wanted to, and that funding was in, ending. So I wanted to do something in my passion. And Deborah said, why don't you call Linda Ligon at Interweave yeah. and see if she has a job? And so I did. And the job they had open was in the shipping department. I didn't really care. I just wanted to be a, around uh, weaving and spinning and so I go there and I'm, I'm never the shipper but I was hired with no experience whatsoever to be her assistant uh-huh. and gradually I mean she really taught me everything I knew and eventually I became the editor of handwoven but anthropology was a really good background sure. For editing, because you learn how to classify information, which is essentially what editing is about. Right. Oh, gosh. That's
0: such an incredible introduction into the weaving world to be Linda Liggins' assistant and then editor of Handwoven. That's wonderful. Um, okay. And so, Barry, you're, you and, and friends made these um, doorknob spindles. And then, kind of, how did that? sort of, and then, you you know, they said maybe you could make a loom. How did that parlay into a business? I think some people at that moment would have been like, all right, done, <laughs> moving on. Well, so, yeah.
1: Fortunately, my brother's girlfriend wanted to learn also how to weave. So we bought this great old book, you know, by Nelson Amorowski called Step-by-Step Weaving. And Dan built this little frame, basically uh, kind of a canvas um, stretcher frame, and made the loom that Nell had put in the uh, book. And we're sitting around, you know, dreaming a little while we're watching this stuff. And I said, gosh, you know, that's tiresome. That's a tedious thing. So I made um, a little change, made some ad- adaptations, put it together with a little handsaw, some nails, a drill. And started using it, and we still have that model on our wall. It's the feature piece of our museum. Um, you would not believe that our company grew from this. But I went and took that up to Louise Green. I showed it to her, and here's the wonder of this woman. She said, "That's a good idea." And it was cruder than you know, rough sticks put together in the woods to hold up a teepee, but. She thought it was great. So um, we perfected it and we redesigned it. I went to the university. And I told the people in the art architecture department I was an art student and could I borrow the equipment? I had a project making looms. So I started producing looms at the University of Colorado um, in the shop. And pretty soon I was in charge of the shop because the old guy there wanted to sleep all the time. And uh, I was helping students with their wood projects. And we kept building a few more looms and then eventually um, found somebody to make looms because it was really a little inappropriate, you know, to keep using the university's uh, equipment. And we did that for a few years. And then we started to buy our own machinery.
0: OK, and go all in and, and really create a company. And Louise, just going back to her it sounds like in Loveland, she had like a, was it like a, a craft school?
1: She had a farm. They raised sheep. Um, she took up weaving and spinning. They had moved there from New York where her husband was one of the advertising type guys, mad men uh, version. And one day um, he just said, we're moving to Colorado And uh, they bought a ranch, they had Morgan horses, they had Corriedale sheep, Um, and Louise was always a crafty person, so she started uh, this as another one of her businesses.
0: I see. Okay, yeah. Wow. Well, she sounds like she was instrumental in kind of encouraging you and um, almost giving you permission to keep going. So, Yeah.
1: yeah. And what's interesting is she is Deborah Chandler's mother.
0: Oh, Okay. All right. It's all coming together. It's a small it's a world. Big
2: legacy here. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that you had owned some buildings, including the building where this um, shop was, where you two met. Um, did you use that property as the first like home base?
1: Yes. Um, we we had a little factory on uh, Boulder Pearl Street, but the fire marshal threw us out of there because it was really retail space. And we had a closet um, at our house and then at the retail shop that was the office. Um, And then uh, we rented a 5,000 square foot space in East Boulder and eventually had the landlord build a little bigger space. And then about 30 years ago, we bought three acres of land and started building our own factory.
0: Okay. And that's still where you are today. Yes. And what is the factory like today? I mean, if somebody, you know, were to be able to come by, maybe take a tour, you know, after COVID, hopefully, um, what is it, you know, give us kind of a snapshot of what Shack Spindle is like
2: now. Yeah, it's, it's high tech and low tech. The first thing you see when you come to Shack, we have a beautiful property with grass and a lawn and we have chickens. And we also have Factory gardens. So, any employee that wants to have a garden plot can have a garden plot. So, I think we have right now about 12 gardeners. So, that's the outside. Inside, you see low tech and high tech. We have CNC machinery, which is uh, computer controlled woodworking, which is a kind of a robot. And then we also have a co- we just got a cobot, which is a uh, a robot that works alongside you to help you do a task. And we have just regular hole drilling where someone's using a drill press. We have people doing design on the computer in AutoCAD. The whole office is very techy, but it's also high touch because you're making a wood product, so it has to be sanded and you have to feel that with your hands. Is it smooth? And then we um, oil it as well. So that's another low-tech, time-intensive process.
1: It's also, we are like a a quintessential um, company because we do almost everything in-house from um, design through sales, through marketing. Um, You know, we have highly skilled people um, right now, you know, uh, we would love to have four more people coming, and they can be at any level of woodworking ability. Um, we do um, a lot of our own printing in house. Uh, we've gotten more automated equipment, but as Jane says, in the end, everything has to be touched and felt. We make over 2,000 parts, and we have custom made for us another 2,000 parts, and those would be metal, rubber, plastic, leather. We sell to probably 10 countries around the world and we are probably 97% of our outside products that we buy um, are made in the U.S., but we also import from about four different countries.
0: And there's a huge assortment here, right? So I was looking on YouTube. You have you know, a loom that's really tiny that can um, be used by a child to weave a bracelet. So something that's really very, you know, beginner level um, all the way up. So um, can you just
2: describe briefly kind of the, the assortments? Sure. We'd like to be the company to help the weaver progress. And they can start at any place. Some people are ready to start on a floor loom, but some people might want to start more simply. So that's why we have a frame loom, which is just lower cost, not as much uh, skill that's required or learning to, to how to make something on it. And then probably the most entry-level area now that people get started weaving is with rigid heddle weaving and our cricket loom has been just very very successful in in getting people interested in weaving because you don't have it's not as involved you can still make beautiful things on it but it's simpler than a floor loom or a shaft loom where you have more complexity where you're threading the heddles you're threading the reed there's and you have all these treadles you have to think about so sometimes people aren't ready to go there yet so they start um, more simply and then go on and basically the next step is just getting bigger and more shafts so we're not we're stopping at that point although we are Developing a new product that we should have out next year that will be um, more attached to complex weaving. Complex weaving. Okay, all right. And you talked a little bit about the
0: garden plots um, on your land that employees can take advantage of. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about just the way that you build community or a sense of belonging among your staff
2: members. Sure. We, we have a very diverse work group. We have Hmong, that's Hill Tribe from Laos. There was a big uh, settlement here in this area. We have uh, Hispanics, uh, people from Mexico, and then we have all different people from all regions of the United States. We have people of color, um, we have old people, and we have really young people. So. Um, I think what we try to do at SHACT is to provide a safe environment where people uh, feel like they can speak out, that they are treated well, that everyone is treated equally, that they're listened to. And it is a challenge when you have such diversity. But one of the things we did this summer that was just terrific, um, and this was organized by some of our new young employees, is we had a party. A pizza parties. it was outside. We had pizza, and then um, they had planned to do tie-dye Indigo T-shirts. And I don't think we've ever done anything that people loved more because there was no language barrier. There were visual aids so they could figure out different ways to create pattern on their shirts. And then with Indigo, it's just magical. So you put it in the vat, and then you take it out. It's kind of light green and then it turns blue. So this was just amazing to people. So that was really fun. And the gardens, in terms of community, people do help each other. The more seasoned gardeners help the the not so experienced gardeners. And then people share produce like you might have too many zucchini or someone might have too many to- tomatoes. So they just trade. That's but lovely. It's, yeah, it's It's really nice to come to work in the morning and people are out in their gardens or at the end of the day.
1: Some days I drive up early and you see all these people bending over and a lot of the Hmongs come in early because they're phenomenal gardeners and they all have an umbrella on their shoulder and they all stand in this over because they use a short hoe, but they're all hunched up. And as you get closer, you find out, oh, they're also talking on their cell phone. (laughs)
0: That's funny. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the decision that you made, because it sounds like it was a pretty early decision um, to only sell wholesale. So Shack Spindle sells to retailers as a wholesaler, but I can't, for example, hop on the website right now and, and just use e-commerce, you know, to buy myself something. Um, you, you know, you have these dealers and so that's an interesting system. And, um, I think we're kind of in an age now where there's a lot of pressure to sell direct to consumer. Um, but you've made the decision not to do that. And I wondered, um, if you could talk a little bit about maybe some of the, the pros that you've seen and and maybe some of the cons, whether you've ever reevaluated or are you really committed to this system?
1: We're constantly um, reevaluating that. Um, Right now we're committed to it because we have wonderful dealers, but we're kind of concerned um, with the possible change in the environment completely, as well as the loss of dealers. And also, even with, say, 500 dealers that we have, some of their knowledge level is not as um, good as what we would like. And we then, as the corporate head, need to provide support. So we're very, um, I'd say, a little bit conflicted, as I think every business in the entire um, world is of what are the best ways to really give the product and the support to the end user. That's the most important thing is that our end user customer is going to have equipment that works properly and that they can thrive in their craft. So um, it's a constant discussion um, internally and um, you know we will be continuing that and you know it may be changing But um, I think just as you said, it's a uh, it's, it's a different world, even than it was three years ago.
0: I want to take a moment now to talk with our sponsor, Wonder Label. Here's Tara from Wonder Label.
3: My name is Tara and my business is Wonder Label.
0: And what are Wonder Label's most popular products?
3: Our most popular products are our woven labels. Um, They're made from 100% recycled polyester, so they are really durable, but they're also flexible and soft, which makes them really popular. We have two types of woven labels, our logo labels, um, where you can upload your own logo or artwork um, using our online design tool. And then you can customize everything from their size and and, uh, label type, et cetera. And then our woven labels with text and symbol, which is designed using our online design tool. So you input your own text, colors, and things like that. And um, a symbol, you can embellish it with a symbol. And then there's some other options you can choose. But um, both of these labels can be ordered as sew-on or iron-on. So they, they really are our most popular product.
0: And is it easy to design labels with Wonder Label?
3: It really is. It's easy because we have these online design tools for for every branding product we have, whether it's a label or a hang tag or a card, a membership card, anything. Um, It will walk you through each step of the design process. So you really can't go wrong. It's step one, step two, step three, choose your colors, upload your logo if that's what you're going to do. It will walk you through, and a lot of our products also have an interactive preview. So you can use this preview to see what your label design looks like. You can also edit and click and drag until you're happy with your design and and ready to order. We're really proud that our woven labels, all of our woven label products are 100% recycled polyester. And in addition to that, they're Okotex Standard 100 Certified. That means that all of the material used to make those labels are free from any substances that might be harmful to your health. In fact, they are also certified to be used on baby items. So you can order with confidence that it's something that that is uh, safe. You can find us at wonderlabel.com in North America. We we do operate worldwide, but in North America, it's wonderlabel.com. And we also have a creative blog, so we give also some free tutorials and uh, creative tips. And we'd like to offer your podcast listeners a 15% discount. Use the code CIA15 during checkout for 15% off your entire order.
0: Thank you so much, Wonder Label. And now back to my conversation with Barry and Jane.
2: Right now, there's, there's a few pressures. You have COVID. So a lot of shops have, you know, struggled because they haven't been open. And then you have a lot of the dealerships. And this isn't just in the field of textiles or retail shops in, in yarn. It's also in, say, the bike industry. A lot of retail Those people that own those businesses are older and younger people are not wanting to come into those kind of businesses and run them. So I think we're going to see fewer and fewer shops. So that's what we have to look at and calibrate for. I mean, what do you do? The other reason why we feel very strongly about having dealers is because we feel like it's critical for shops to teach. If shops aren't teaching, they're not creating their market. Because to weave, to learn to weave and spin, is so much easier to take a class. But that's changing, too, because people are offering online education and it's working very well. And we've started doing that as well.
0: Right, exactly. I mean, having these tools, a loom or a spindle, you absolutely need education, as you mentioned. I mean, even more so than, for example, buying a new sewing machine. You know, this is a, a more complex um, process, and you would benefit so much from being able to take a class, you know, with an expert. Um, but as you're saying, that can be more and more difficult to find in many areas of the United States. So it sounds like, Jane, you're working to do some online um, education maybe or to build your own school. Can you talk a little bit about some of the educational attempts that you're working on um, just to kind of bring that in-house?
2: Sure. Sure i've always wanted to have a textile school i've i've taught weaving um all along uh, at at guilds and shops and traveled some and i love that process and in just in colorado we've had our local shop a shop in um, two other shops in the area that have closed those are venues for people to go to learn so now that isn't available So I felt like this was a time to think about offering more classes so not only local people could come, but also we could have more national, even international um, reach. So that right now we're doing online because we felt like that's what we can do right now. We want to build a school on the property that it would attach to the factory. So you come to Shaft, you go one way, you go into the factory, you go to the other way into the school. Yeah. So that we haven't finished the architectural drawings yet. And we have to make sure that we can afford to build a building because right now it's very expensive to build in Boulder.
0: Right. But that would be such an incredible resource for people to be able to come and learn together right on your property that seems like a dream come true (laughs)
2: yeah I would love it yeah I hope hope it all will work I have hired someone to be the school coordinator so right now she's doing the online projects and other things like that so we already have a person in place to to do the school when it's time for it to emerge I guess (laughs) And you talked a
0: little bit about the Cricut Loom, which is the rigid huddle loom that's been so popular. You have a club attached to it. Um, I wondered if you could just tell us the story of the development of that product and, um, yeah, why you feel like it's really popular, um, plans for it, how you've promoted it and marketed it over the
2: years. Sure. Well, this is where it's important, I think, for me to teach because when I go to workshops, I see what people are weaving on. And one workshop, there was a student, she was just struggling. She was weaving on this loom. It was a rigid head loom designed for children. And it was such a struggle. I thought that is terrible. If an adult is having a hard time weaving on this loom, what about a child? So I came home, I said, we have to design a loom for children. And that was the cricket loom. And we wanted it to be Less expensive, so that's why we made all the sides out of cu- uh, plywood. So we cut the whole shape out of plywood so there- this loom doesn't have that many pieces. And then because it was supposed to be for children, I, I thought it needed a cute name, so Cricket seemed like a cute name. Um, and then we came out with it, but it really was adults that embraced it, and especially knitting stores. And Barry did a really He had a fabulous idea um, for a promotion at tn a
1: Supply us with yarn. We wove a sample on that yarn. And then in each of their spaces, their uh, show booths, we placed a loom with the fabric on it and a finished scarf. So basically, as a retailer, you came to that shop and you saw that all these yarns that everybody thought were just knitting yarns right. <laughs> were now doing these beautiful scarves and fabrics, and there was our loom featured. Um, and um, it worked just really well. So the cricket Loom had a wonderful introduction. It took off, and it also was an education for these yarn companies that the weaving market was a significant market for them.
0: Yeah, and, that's and so. So great. we had a
1: lot of friends, you know, in the industry at that point.
0: Yeah, that's so. That's so interesting. So it basically allowed people to look, both, you know, at retailers to look at yarn that they're going to have in their inventory on their shelves in their stores in a new way. Just and really, just by seeing that sample made.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, it was fun. And also, uh, Jane um, had, I think maybe then or just after that, wrote a great book for um, Interweave called The Scarf Book. And it still has some of the most fabulous designs in it using knitting yarns.
0: Right. And are a lot of those made on the Cricut Loom? All of them. All of them. That's great. That's super fantastic. And I love the idea that this was a product originally designed for children. Um, I'm thinking of Melanie Fallick's book, um, that introduction to knitting book that is designed for children. But I know so many adults who learn to knit from that book.
2: Right. Right.
0: Yeah. It's interesting how sometimes when you simplify something to that degree, um, adults actually want it, too. So, yeah, that 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 is really cool. And, and it sounds to you like TNNA played a really instrumental role in your business um, for many years as far as being able to reach the retailers, reach the yarn companies so that you could show them. Hey, here's something new. Here's how this works. Here's what it looks like. Um and so uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the years that you did go to TNA and um sort of the what's next.
2: I mean, I guess there's there's this gap now. Right. So what was really good about TNA? so we had, with Interweave and Schacht and a couple other companies, we had tried to, and we did have for a short time, called the Weaving and Spinning Council, but the, end of, the weaving and spinning industry is pretty small, so there really wasn't enough businesses to support that organization. So Marilyn Murphy at Interweave and I, and I think she was president of TNNA at that time, um, but they were really open to us, this group the Spinning and Weaving Council. So we went one time, they gave us a free booth. We went there just to test. What did people think? Was, would this be, would this work? And so after a while, we joined them as a category of TNA, weaving and spinning. And that was great because now we had an organization, that a bigger organization that could support us, but we still had our little interest group. So there weren't actual, a lot of loom, companies that went to TNA are equipment makers but there were more shops that would go that maybe were our weaving customers but they were all knitting customers which was really helpful to us because then we could meet our customers because we didn't really have an opportunity otherwise and we also did a lot of education at TNA i would teach classes some of my staff people would have classes and then we would have these spatial events for our dealers where we would do education before the floor opened. So it was really a good way to be in touch with people. Um, they also sponsored uh, Spinzilla, which was a fabulous, yeah. um, a fabulous event. So nothing has replaced that. And so, you know, I think this is where Craft Industry Alliance is filling a good gap because you are providing industry news. I learn a lot from reading your newsletters and, and you have your roundtables and all these things that are bringing people together to talk and that's really important. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, that's interesting to hear those reflections on the role of TNA, and, and we'll see what the path forward there looks like. I wondered whether you um, began with because your business is um, celebrating anniversaries that are long past the the event of the internet, did you start with um, a catalog and then move online, or could you talk about the early days of of moving, um, you know, your assortment to be online, or or how did that work?
1: Well, in the beginning, I, I learned a really good lesson early. And uh, in the early days, my brother would put a couple looms on his motorcycle and ride around the country and visit stores. And I would get in my old van and go visit people. And we're talking about there might have been 10 shops in the country back in the early 70s. But one day I went to Seattle and I went into a store and they had some crafts and other things. And I brought um, an ankle loom and I showed it to the guy. And he said, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, at this time, a lot of uh, hippie type guys were making little looms and stuff. And he said, yeah, well, that's, you know, interesting. But do you have any instructions? And I took out the instruction sheet, our first printed piece. And he said, you are in business. I'll buy them. That was my first lesson. So we've always done instructions. We've always done catalogs. We did some really crummy ads in the early days. Um, black and white was all we could afford. And fortunately for me, I took this wonderful picture in, uh, outside Dublin of our five sheep logo. And as soon as we could afford color, we brought that to prominence. And it's probably one of the most famous logos in the entire, you know, weaving yeah. industry. <laughs> and we have exploited it. We Every couple of years, we even commission art. Um, we've got paintings, we've got, um, uh, sculptures, you know, we've got all kinds of stuff and we've done so many catalogs, um, over the years up until, I don't know if you got a copy of our 50th anniversary one. It was, uh, it's the piece de resistance. That nice. Was, uh, Jane oversaw that, um, she art directed it. We had great designers and, uh, great photographers, you know, to, to produce that, um, And for quite a few years, we were always printing everything in-house as we got better and better printing equipment um, because the Internet took over um, and people were putting more money into their websites. So we did that for a while, and now we're kind of doing both.
0: Okay, so catalogs do still play an important role, it sounds like, in your marketing strategy, and I, I do think catalogs, um, you know, are, are are still really lovely and useful, um, especially for retailers to to receive.
2: Well, the thing about the fiftieth anniversary catalog is, it's not just about the product; it really tells the history of this period of when we started and kind of how weaving progressed and and gives gives context to our company. So I think that is never going to go out of date. And do you see resonance
0: between the, you know, 1960s kind of back to the land um, movement or sentiment and kind of today's desire among, um, maybe among millennials perhaps to, you know, work with their hands and sort of do something tangible and real that's not on their phones. Are you, do you see any, um, parallels
2: there? Oh, yes. I think people want to have real things. They want to be able to hold and touch things. So I think that's part of what is now, but, This all started at the millennial. That's when we saw a big surge in people wanting to do things like grow their own food, make their own stuff, weave, spin, knit, cook. This is just like what happened in the 60s, kind of the back to the earth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And how did um, your business do during COVID? Obviously, a lot of the retailers that you um, work with as dealers, their in-person stores were closed, yet at the same time, people at home, stuck at home, were turning to doing more crafting. So um, what happened to Shack Spindle over the last year and a half?
1: It was, uh, 2020 was a pretty good year, but we had to close for seven weeks. Um, Fortunately, um, we were able to keep all of our 50 employees fully paid And we kept their health insurance benefits going. And at the end of that seven weeks, that really paid off because everybody came back to work.
2: Oh, nice.
0: So we had a
1: full workforce, but we never could quite get caught up. And now um, we're we're caught up. We're doing we're having our best year ever. But every day is an interesting um, struggle in finding supplies um, prices are going up every day, we get more price increases from every kind of supplier, no matter where in the world or in the country they are, and um, something's going on and we're still trying to figure out, we need employees, but we hardly have anybody walk in the door. So it's, it's really, um, we're becoming more efficient, we're doing more, but we're doing more with less. But um, somehow we're thriving and we're able to purchase enough supplies into the future um, to keep everybody um, supplied. But it's, it's probably the most challenging time that I have ever experienced in business.
0: Yeah. Um, and I know that there were wood shortages for a time. Is that still happening?
1: Softwoods for construction Um, what, they quadrupled or more in price. Hardwoods have not gone up that much, but they have gone up 20%. And what has caused some of the um, lack of supply is that some of the hardwood mills have done more softwoods because the pricing was so great. So they basically put hardwood on the back burner, started doing softwood for construction, and um, that meant our deliveries were kind of behind. But at this point, we somehow have managed to have enough, you know, inventory of uh, the major woods that we purchase probably for the next four to six months. That's a really envi- enviable position, but it can change radically, you know, but they're, they're cutting softwood forests more, hardwoods are sitting, waiting, um, and that's true with every supply, it doesn't matter if it's aluminum, steel, um, you know, it's pretty amazing plastics, you know, I mean, a plastic bag has gone up four times in the last year. So,
0: and do you see um, people who like you need to source these supplies hoarding them or overbuying in order to hedge against future possibilities of them not being available?
1: Yeah, we, we are doing that. Um, You know, uh, an example is we have another business that makes bicycle bells and mirrors. It is thriving because that's one of the sports that people are going to. But we have domestic suppliers we can buy a million screws from in a year. And they're so overburdened that we've had to buy a year ahead because if we've given them an order today, it could be 24 weeks before we'll get it. So we've had to do that. Um, And fortunately, you know, our business is strong enough to do that. Um, You know, some businesses aren't able to do that, so they struggle from day to day. Uh, But planning is still a major issue. Yeah. Um, Planning and, and inventorying.
2: Yeah, this is one of Barry's skills. And I think it's an important thing for people in business to think about because you always want more sales you want your business to grow, you want more sales. But on the other hand, you want profit too. And so Barry is really good at managing the bottom line, meaning how do you control those prices? Because if you can save on the bottom line, it's like doing a lot more in sales. So for example, you might um, get a price increase for a washer that's just like four times as much. Well, I mean, washers are pretty available everywhere so you go and see if you can get the same quality at a better price but you might have to buy a lot more in order to get that price Mm -hmm. so that's part of the challenge of always juggling do you do you accept that price or maybe you can get that price um if you order more from that company so there's a lot of a lot more involved now in purchasing
0: and can you talk about the bicycle business, Barry? How did that get started? And is it related to the loom business in some way?
1: No, no, but it's, it's just a terrific little business. We have about um, four employees that cross over, like accounting and shipping, you know, and then we have about seven or eight assemblers. Um, it started with a bike mirror. And I started bicycling again in Boulder about 43 years ago. I'd grown up in a rural area, and I just noticed there was all this traffic. So I said, I need a mirror. And instead of going out and buying one, I made one. And now, millions of mirrors later, we're still doing very well. And because the bike industry, you can build and offer say uh, we just interviewed a person for a job the other day and he works for a company and they sell five to ten thousand dollar bicycles they can't complete a sale because they can't buy one component which is manufactured in japan we um, manage through this juggling of vendors to um, find alternate sources so that we probably, we might be the golden child for the, the distributors because we can supply them almost every order in a timely way. And, and our customer is different. We are selling to the biggest bike companies in the country. They sell to the bike shops. So it's a totally different way of doing business. Um, we also import a lot um, from uh, Japan. And we manufacture most of our uh, bike mirrors in the United States. Uh, but the managing of that has made us very successful because our um, our customers cannot find um, products which compete with ours as readily. So we've done just really well.
0: And it's an interesting thing, too, to kind of diversify out of the textile and fiber industry obviously that's the main business but to have this other business as well that kind of operates based on different factors um, with a different as you mentioned kind of chain of suppliers etc um, so I think that probably in some way kind of hedges your risk on the overall parent company.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And, you know, for me, it's great because it's another area for design and invention, um, marketing things. So, you know, that's kind of what I love to do in the business.
0: Mm -hmm, Right. It keeps you interested, which is also super important. Um, And I wondered about Ravelry um, Jane, maybe you can talk to this. But what role has Ravelry? Because you know you operated a long time before Ravelry existed. Um, so I wondered what role over the last you know decade and more, decade and a half that Ravelry has played
2: um, for for Schacht. Yeah, I think. I, I guess I'm not totally sure what impact Ravelry Ravelry has had. I do know that we have some terrific uh, moderators that are knowledgeable and really answer people's questions in a really good way. We monitor what's going on every day, and then we comment if someone has something. Because one thing that does happen on Ravelry, and you probably know this, is people are giving advice, but it's not the right advice because they don't really have enough knowledge about the product or the process or whatever it is. And so we try to jump in there to make sure that people are getting the right information. And then we just encourage people to contact us if they have have a problem. We have probably the best customer service out there in our industry because we have committed to supporting our product. And now it's been made for 52 years. Um, but we're still servicing stuff that's 40, 50 years old. And we have a person dedicated to the customer service. And if she can answer the question, Barry or I can. And we have other people in the shop that might know mechanically what's going wrong that can be fixed. So we, our goal is to really try to help people. Yeah, that social
0: listening is is really smart. And I wondered if you could talk about your succession plans. Um, this is obviously a family business that the two of you own and run together. And um, not too long ago, I had Kathy Elkins from Webs on the show right before they announced the sale to Lovecrafts. And I wondered if you were looking eventually for an exit like that one at some point, or you have something different in mind.
2: Yeah, I, I love I was so jealous when they sold the business like that. And then pretty soon they'll it'll be gone. But our succession plan is different in that um, we have a son-in-law that's been in the business for ten years, and he is committed to Shaq, and we have uh, our process has been to bring along a new young team. And so those people are terrific, they're learning a lot, they're coming up to speed, and in in the management group, we're also going through a process where people are um, being trained to learn a process to run the company after we step away. Right now, I would say I'm partially retired. I only go to meetings and consult. Um, Barry's goes into the office every day, and he, you know he he would like to um, retire um, someday soon.
1: <laughs> yeah, the goal is in, uh, you know, a year. Um, we, we thought it was going to happen quicker. We um, interviewed a guy to manage the bicycle part of the business a week ago. Everybody liked him. He was supposed to come in yesterday and he was going to meet 10 people. He was going to see the paperwork. He accepted the wage um, and he called and decided he was going to work for a friend of his. That was kind of a shock, you know. So we're back out it again, looking for somebody who's got good management operational skills within the bicycle industry, um, but not doesn't have to be exclusive. But it's nice if they have that passion, you know, and that they love uh, bicycles and uh, they understand uh, what products are needed because it's a it's a bigger job than just the operations. So. Um, i I was a little deflated yesterday
0: yeah i bet this sounds like a good plan though as far as um the son-in-law um and the younger team i i do think when you mentioned um jane a while back about interweave and you know we all kind of witnessed what happened to f&w and you know private equity and um just there was a lot of um real sadness about what happened to all those brands that they collected up and then went bankrupt with. Um, Fortunately, Linda rescued um, the best pieces, along with Anne. But, um, but, you know, I I do always worry about these wonderful brands that end up in that situation.
1: Yeah, I'm not so sure, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, like, Hungry for purchasing loom companies (laughs) but this guy that we had wanted to hire from bike company he belonged to a nine-person company with uh, these um, very wonderful brands of bicycles that couldn't complete sales because they couldn't get supplies they got bought out by a couple of companies and now they're run by a guy who's got a lot of money uh, from Chicago you know and he only comes to town two days a week so you know that's not private equity, but it's private ownership. Uh, the guy's got a hobby. You know, it's sad for the the brands.
0: Yeah, exactly. So finding that right buyer or next stage, um, and and doing it carefully is just so important for the survival and and the spirit of the company to continue. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, we
2: feel we, we we're very uh, positive about what we're seeing that there's a lot of smart enthusiastic people on our team right now and i just have confidence they're just going to carry carry on they don't need us really anymore
0: (laughs) um okay i wanted to make sure we got to both of your recommendation lists um because you have some good ones on there and it helps us get to know you as people a little Mm -hmm. bit better so um jane you were talking about well we had referred to the gardening plots um, on the campus but it sounds like um, you well you have, you were talking about those that was one of your recommendations and doing some gardening
2: right well gardening is really therapeutic and it's so amazing to plant a seed and now you're eating the beans I just love that part of it. To me, that's the healing part of gardening. It's, it's creative because you have to think, well, this isn't working. What am I going to do next year? I, I do that a lot of my flower garden. But every year there's an adjustment in, in the vegetable garden, how you grow something, where you're going to grow it, what um, variety you want to try that this one didn't work. And then you'll get to eat this stuff. It's just wonderful.
1: And yeah. I love to shovel. So <laughs> I, 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 it's one, It's and it's also one of the most amazing skills. I've worked with some wonderful people who are like human backhoes over the years. So shoveling is great. But this year I took on a bunch of um, onions and leeks and garlic and you, you know, you can barely, you know, find um, our table out in our home garden because we've got more onions, you know, and they're drying. And those are my kind of crops, you know, besides eating tomatoes off the vine. Uh, But this year we've gardened together more because I just have more time. We haven't
0: traveled. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's so satisfying. That's wonderful. And Jane, you wanted to recommend a book. And I actually have not read this book. It's called When Women Were Birds
2: Mm -hmm. by Terry Tempest Williams. And she is a wonderful she's she's also a poet. So this is very poetic. It's it's written in a very approachable style. It's not a linear story. It starts with her mother. Her mother dies and she says, I'm going to will you my journals, but don't open them till I die. And so her mother dies and she goes to the shelf of journals. They're all empty. Nothing has been written in them. So this this is the start of the story and and what does that what is the meaning of that so she's always coming back to what is the meaning of that and she's a wonderful observer of nature and she's just a beautiful writer she has a great way with words so it's to me this is a therapeutic book that I just read a little section every day
0: wow that sounds like a great recommendation um thank you and it sounds to like you, although you haven't been doing any big trips during COVID, but you have been traveling around in your camper van with your bikes.
1: Yes. And Jane's in charge because the darn thing, it's, it's a little different than the van I arrived in Boulder in. It, it has everything you want and it has all these electronics. <laughs> so I'm a bit of a Luddite, so... Jane's in charge. I can open and close the doors and I can drive, but she has to push all the buttons.
2: Yeah. That's been a great pleasure. We, it's like a lot of people got campers or vans because they didn't want to travel or fly or go to hotels. Yeah. And for us, it's been terrific. And we haven't had to go very far and to see some beautiful land. We went to Western Nebraska and it was just so beautiful and no one was there.
0: Right, yeah. There's tons of freedom in that, and although it's not quite the same thing, I just finished reading the book *Nomadland*,
1: um, oh, and yeah.
0: yeah, so I learned a lot about campervans um, as a result. Yeah, it's
1: it's different. There's a movie too. I, read I know.
0: The book. I haven't yeah. seen it yet. I just watched the trailer when I finished the book.
1: It's 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 really good. I finished the book four years ago, and then I saw the movie. And you know, there's only really two actors in the movie. Everybody else is real.
0: It's amazing.
1: Yeah, so it was it was really well done.
0: Yeah, yeah, she's also a great writer. And um, Barry, you had another um, book to recommend. I think it's called Walking to Samarkand. Sam, Samarkand,
1: Samarkand. Okay. yes. And I just, I don't know where it came to me, but it's written by a Frenchman who's a retired um, journalist, Bernard Olivier. And he's retired at 62, which is, boy, talk about that for being young but he's feeling his age people no longer respect him even though he's a young old his wife died prematurely he needs to prove his um muscle and um, mental capacity and he starts walking the silk road from venice to the um east coast of china wow and um He's in China now, and he does this over four years. This is back in the years 2000 to 2004. Um, And it's just, he reflects a little on life, but he's really meeting a lot of people. And it's not different than you would expect. There's nothing great going on, but it's, you know, these are the people we would meet if we walked, you know, wherever, to downtown Boulder you know, are, are you in Boston? I am. Yeah. So if you, you know, walk down to Faneuil Hall, you'd come across every kind of character, right? you know, and some of them are nice, some of them are good. But he's a wonderful writer. And um, he introduces people in a very matter of fact way. And you get to take part in their lives. So it's really interesting. And every once in a while, he talks about the Silk Road. And, you know, to all of us, In textiles, of course, that's such an important thing, the whole world of arts and crafts of ancient times. But it also included all the wars and terrors, which unfortunately still exist today. And he experiences a lot of that. But it's a very good, um, comforting read as far as, you know, here's the world and it's pretty much unchanged.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a great book too. You've given us some really good books to put on our list. So I super appreciate that. There's something better than a really good book recommendation. So Jane and Barry, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you both.
1: Thanks. You know, I think you're doing just a terrific job. You know, I think we're, we're fans.
0: <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Abby. It was, it was great. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance Podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Wonder Label. Visit wonderlabel.com, that's W-U-N-D-E-R, label.com, to customize your own clothing labels, hang tags, gift ribbon, and other branding items. Their interactive online design tool will walk you through the design process. Recycled options, small batch quantities, and Okotech certified labels are just a few of the amazing options they offer. And use that discount code CIA15 for 15% off your entire purchase. Thank you so much Wonder Label. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.